You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis, and we are recording from the Mumbrella ComsCon conference today. Joining me for our first in-person event that we've done since March 2020 is Tim Burrows. Hello, in person. Olivia Crimmel. Hello, Damien. And Xander Wilson. Hey, Damo. Later in the Mumbrella Cast, Xander will be talking to Vanguard CMO Louise Ayres about starting as Vanguard's inaugural marketing chief during a global pandemic. You know, a lot of that was bringing in talent through um, Zoom interviews and, you know, that added a a really interesting dimension to how you build out teams, how you build out culture. Putting together Vanguard's first ever marketing campaign in Australia. Really spending a few weeks of the campaign introducing ourselves, um, saying, you know, this is Vanguard. I'm talking about the Vanguard effect. And why the business went with TBWA for their creative account following a pitch process. Um, I think for many in 2020, it was how do you do pitches um, via Zoom and and via Teams um, and really get that partnership coming through. But first, the week's topics. Facebook's Australian tax bill. The A-League finally inks a new broadcast rights deal, signing on with 10 and new Viacom CBS streaming service, Paramount+. Plus. And Cleminger Group announces pay increases for staff, while Hayes reports a significant gap between employers and employees when it comes to wage expectations. Facebook Australia has reported 2020 advertising revenue collected in Australia came to just over $712 million, up $3.2 million on 2019. Of that, only $155.34 million is taxable down from 167.1 in 2019. In a statement, Facebook said the company acts as a reseller of advertising services to designated Australian customers through a reseller agreement with another group company and generates revenues primarily through resale of advertising inventory on Facebook. Olivia, what does all that mean? Why is Facebook paying less tax despite bringing in higher revenue? Yes, Damien. Facebook Australia is able to trim its tax bill here thanks to a loophole which allows it to pay its regional operations in Singapore for ad resale services as per the statement, which essentially means it's funneling its income in Australia to a low tax haven, Singapore. Uh, The outcome is that effectively Facebook ends up paying roughly just under 3% tax on the Australian profits. So the figure that you've got there, the $712 million, when minusing all the expenses that come with operating a business in Australia, i.e. staff and overheads, et cetera, et cetera, marketing, sales expenditure, um, the, the profit then is still uh, quite sizable and the $20 million is not at all comparable to the 30% income tax that they're saying they're paying. So, Tim, these uh, figures give a bit of a snapshot of Facebook's scale in Australia. How does it compare to other media companies? Well, look, I guess you measure the scale in a couple of ways. If you look at revenue, then, you know, the old saying used to be for a TV network, they'd bring in about a billion dollars. So, obviously, at 700 million or something, then Facebook's a little bit behind. So, I, I think from memory, looking at Seven West Media's last report, they were just a little over... Um, uh, probably just a little over a billion just for the TV network part of it. So, so getting up there. So I suppose you'd probably say, in terms of revenue, a little bit behind News Corp, a little bit behind 
seven. Ten, we don't get so much transparency on these days. Um, well behind Google. But of course, the other element of scale is the number of people who are employed because that creates jobs. It's another means of paying tax because, of course, you know, tax on profits is one measure, but, you know, tax created by, you know, paying um, payroll tax and so on is another. And that, I think, is where both Facebook and Google both, you know, certainly in, in, in years gone by have failed to pay their or failed to earn their social license in that they offshore a lot of their profits, don't employ that many people locally, certainly compared to the existing traditional media, um, which of course is what then makes the whole forcing them to uh, pay out under the you know threatened news media bargaining code, this thing that the ACCC was enforcing, it makes it a bit more palatable because you know, it doesn't necessarily feel that they've made as big a contribution to the local market, you know, completely legal to offshore those taxes, but also, um, you know, it's never felt particularly morally acceptable. Just on that, Tim, it is interesting to note that they increased the expenditure on staff or employee benefit expenses, as it's referred to in the report, um, up to $67 million in 2020 from 55.1 in 2019. I did actually ask Facebook about that increase in that cost to see if they had gone on a hiring spree during the year. Um, they didn't come back with any figures, unfortunately. Tim, you've discussed this uh, a bit and best in the week, in particular in terms of should we make Facebook and Google pay more in tax or should we be chasing up that line of, uh, I guess, strategy when it comes to supporting the Australian industry? Should we be annoyed by the figures that we're seeing and should we be attacking the that side of things and, and trying to get them to pay more tax and, and ignore the rest of it? Look, you know, right, going way back to Kerry Packer, you know, his famous line was, anyone who pays more tax than they should do needs to get their head read. Um, th so this is what the law is. There are there are loopholes that let them offshore the profits. The, the issue is that around the world, countries have found it really hard and have been slow to move in actually capturing what goes on in local activity in a way that, can, that can, can, can then be taxable. And I'm sure it's not just Google and Facebook, you know, it'll be the same with your, your Netflix, for instance. You know, any, anybody who um, has got a global operation that uh, is digital in some way, then of course, because the law lets them, they'll offshore, they'll offshore it. You know, it's, um, you know, morally challenged, but, you know, the ultimate challenge is for governments to close the loopholes. It's a good time to ask you as well about an update on our discussions with Google and Facebook. I had a chat with a publisher during the week who will go unnamed who suggested that they had come to a point in time where they weren't getting any further now. The, the gate had been opened and then nothing really happened after that. Where are we? Yeah. Yeah, very similar situation for us. Look, I, you know, I, I, I know there's a bit, bit of information this week that, for instance, the ABC have said that they've progressed their conversations. So I suspect that um, there's a limited number of people in these organisations having the conversations. They've stuck so far with the big end of town. Um, hey, you know, we barely qualify for the little end of town, so I suspect it'll be some time before, you know, before be, before we come to the top of the pile, if that happens at all. 
but um, it's certainly you know intriguing watching the process and, and and playing the game and still also trying to work with the ACMA to get registered as a as a as, as a news business. Coming up next, Network Ten swoops in with a broadcast deal for the A League. Football's new independent body, Australian Professional Leagues, or APL, has signed a new broadcast rights deal with Network 10 and parent company Viacom CBS, which will see the A-League and W-League broadcast on Channel 10, 10 Bold, and new streaming service Paramount+. Plus. The deal ends a 16-year affiliation between the A-League and Foxtel and is worth around $200 million over five years, including cash and commercial contra. Xander, we heard murmurs about this deal uh, and it was just about to go over the line on on Tuesday, but uh, we only got confirmation yesterday. How did the broadcast rights saga finally come to an end? Yeah, so it's been a a bit of a rough trot for football in Australia in terms of broadcast rights over the last couple of years. Last year, midway through COVID, Fox was able to renegotiate its deal with with the A-League and the W-League to halve the amount that it was paying for for the season that's just about to wrap up. So it's been coming up to the point where the rights have been up for a while. There's been speculation that uh, that it could go to Stan Sporter Nine, and there was speculation as well that in the media that it could have gone to to Viacom CBS, and and that's eventually what's what's happened. We saw a few reports, including a former sports journal at the Oz Ray Gat reported on on Tuesday night or or tweeted because he's retired that this deal was over the line. A few of the details that came out on Tuesday night as I followed the story on Twitter weren't exactly what happened until the next day when we found out what the, what the actual deal was and 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 yeah it, it's it's been locked in by by this new player Viacom CBS which will launch uh, sorry new player Paramount Plus um, and Paramount Plus will launch in Australia on the 11th of August uh, with the A-League being one of its one of its premier offerings when it when it starts up again later in the year as well as the W League the new deal significantly will see the A league and w league broadcast on free-to-air tv uh, the current deal with fox doesn't see any free-to-air at all which is really tough for the sport of course it's also the first time that a uh, primary commercial channel being 10 itself will broadcast football in australia in the form of the a league as well so there'll be a, a prime time game every single saturday night broadcast on channel 10 former 10 channel 1 hd did have the rights to broadcast uh, a few years back, they did one game a week, but this is the first time it's been on a on a major commercial free to air channel. So on a Saturday night, what do you think a good ratings number looks like? Given that Saturday's usually a bit depressed, not as much competition, perhaps. But is there a is there an audience appetite for it? Do you think from that, that justifies it on a main channel? I think there's a few things to unpack there. Um, one of the primary complaints of, and one of the struggles that the A-League has faced not being on a free-to-air broadcaster is that unless the pub has has Fox and all the Fox channels, and even if it does, it's unlikely to have the A-League on. It's not a game that's that's on in pubs. You know, the AFL, the NRL being on 9, 7 and 10 over the years and even cricket, the big bash and that sort of thing. Very easy for, for pubs to broadcast. So so that's one aspect of it. Um, Saturday night, as you say, it's not going up against a lot of competition. So it'll be really interesting to see how it goes. Come on, give us a metro number. 
a metro number. Yeah, metro number. Your prediction for the first, uh, the first day of team. I I think if it can start to bring in around 150 in the first, you know, maybe the first half of the season, they might consider that a success. 150. You're setting the bar very low for them. Well, I th- I think to start with, it's going to be a, massively about an awareness campaign. The other thing is that those Saturday night games will also be on Paramount Plus. So anyone that is really into football that is going to pay the 8.99 that it's going to cost to sign up for Paramount Plus. Well, might might be watching it on Paramount Plus. So, so the the having it on on ten is a bit like um, is a bit like nine and Stan Sport broadcasting the rugby union um, just one game a week on on free to air TV. It's sort of about creating that awareness. So I don't think they'll be reading too much into those metro ratings, at least to begin with. That's interesting though, because if you're a football fan. If you enjoy EPL, you're with Optus. If you want some of the other European leagues or the MLS, you're with KO. And now if you want the A-League, you're going to get Paramount+. Plus. Are there enough A-League fans to make this worth the money that they've just invested? It's a really good question. And if you go back a few years, A-League crowds were starting to get really big. I'm talking sort of early 2010s. The ratings were quite decent on Foxtel. There was one game a week on SBS on Saturday night and football was really in a position of strength in Australia. It has fallen away a little bit since then, um, but it will be, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see whether they can get that audience. It's it's a matter of fact that unfortunately the rise of all these streaming services, although individual leagues are getting more money, will fragment the Australian audience. The football world in general is is seeing this as a win. One of the reasons why is because um, Viacom CBS has actually purchased a stake in the APL. Uh, they, they said it was a small small stake in their press release yesterday, uh, but it's been reported by a few outlets that it's around 2.5%. So perhaps unlike previous uh, paid broadcasters who might not have had a vested interest in the game growing, um, Viacom CBS do, and they've shown that by getting out the checkbook and actually purchasing part of the game in Australia. And you've been, at least in the office anyway, particularly critical of how uh, football in Australia has been broadcast previously. What does Paramount Plus need to do and 10 need to do to make the broadcast top-notch? There, there, are a few, there are a few reasons why football fans in Australia have become a bit disillusioned by the broadcasting, especially on Foxtel in recent years. Um, the technical glitches is one aspect of it. Uh, the other thing that, that football fans, especially fans of the A-League and the W-League, have become critical of over the last few years has been the broadcast schedule, which seems to just change at the drop of a hat. Um, sorry, the, the fixture schedule changes at the drop of a hat based on what the, what the broadcaster, Foxtel for the most part, has wanted. Uh, so people who've bought tickets to games have actually had to change the times they've gone to games. Some of that has been COVID related. Um, but I think that, that there are a few really simple things that Viacom and, and Paramount Plus can do to put together a really strong broadcast. And if we've seen anything this year, it's that new players can come in and deliver really strong broadcasts in their first attempt. Uh, Stance Sport with Rugby Union, one I mentioned before, Amazon Prime's about to launch um, its broadcast of, of the swimming in Australia. And, and and I think there is something to be said for just having one sport on your platform. Optus Sport is one that does it particularly well. You can really uh, specialise into it. So I think you know they'll need to build a really specialist team uh, getting Simon Hill back on board will be a massive plus if they can do that. And yeah, for me, it's just really about getting the simple things right. Football fans in Australia are really excited about this. 
if they just don't don't make those simple mistakes, if if the broadcast goes out without too many technical glitches, um, I think they'll find plenty of people will sign up for Paramount, Paramount just off the back of this deal. Coming up next, Clemens Group announces a pay increase for staff while Hayes releases annual salary reports. Clemenger Group is set to give staff who had a temporary pay reduction in 2020 and earn less than $200,000 a year a 5% pay increase, Mumbrella can reveal. The decision to give staff the increased pay to be paid monthly was announced last week by the group's management after Mumbrella reported significant unrest within the group following changes made to staff pay and hours, among other things, last year. Olivia, you've been covering this one since the beginning. What is the latest? Yes, Damien, as uh, revealed recently, Clemenger's financial results for 2020 showed that the business slashed staff costs by $24.5 million. Um, The cost savings were attributed to job cuts and wage reductions, according to Clemenger Group Executive Chairman Robert Morgan. Uh, This week, a spokesman for the group told Mumbrella that the annual increase is greater than the reduction of last year and the salary increases are permanent. And as mentioned, they will be paid monthly. Obviously, this doesn't help any of the staff that have now left as a result of the wage reductions and uh, redundancies at various agencies within the group, uh, which as per earlier reporting, uh, a lot of those staff have now expressed quite a lot of frustration uh, at the management for those decisions made last year and for the extra work and hours that the remaining staff were forced to put in as a result of those departures and redundancies. In addition to the pay increase, uh, CHE Proximity will also be giving staff uh, an additional three days annual leave. Uh, This was to compensate for the enforced leave that they had to take during 2020. Just to note that is only for that agency. It's not a group-wide initiative as far as we understand. Um, Also worth noting that this week, Hayes came out with their annual salary uh, survey. Those in the marketing and digital industries who are looking for a pay rise this year will be disappointed to know that according to Hayes, just under half of employers, 42% to be precise, don't expect to give a pay rise this year. Um, Only 9% of employers in the industry, in fact, are looking to give uh, pay increases of 3% and above to staff. Um, Regional Director of Hayes Marketing and Digital, Eliza Kirby, told us that the value of salary increases is driving a wedge between employers and employees. So I expect we'll see more on that as it comes around to pay review cycles amongst various agencies in the industry. And we may see more staff looking to move on and and change uh, companies as a result of those lack of pay increases. Let me go back to the Clemenger Group uh, story first. Uh, You mentioned that CHE Proximity, CHEP as we like to call them, uh, has slightly different, um, uh, I guess, bonuses in in the sense that they're they're getting back these three additional days of annual leave. How has that gone down that different agencies are getting different uh, opportunities uh, when it comes to trying to redress the balance? It looks like within Clemenger Group, there's been a lot of variation in terms of how the individual agencies and those uh, in charge of those agencies have handled everything throughout the COVID 
period and, and now going forward as well. We understand that certain agencies within the group, for instance, never implemented any staff um, either reduced hours, reduced wages, enforced leave, etc. during 2020, it really did come down to the individual agency, although we understand that several agencies were impacted by those decisions last year. Uh, going forward, it seems the same that depending on which brand you sit under within Clemenger Group, your um, entitlements going forward will vary as well. Tim, you spoke, last time we spoke about this, about the one of the main aims of a business is profit, of course. Um, how do you see that in terms of being different for different agencies? Well, look, there's firstly one of the things about profit. There's a short term and there's long term. And last year was about short term survival. And I guess now the question is about that long term thing of retaining your staff and keeping your staff happy. Um, I think it feels from where we sit a bit unclear exactly what the whole the group as a whole is is doing. Um, I suppose one one question that f I guess fascinates me, and maybe I'd throw it to you, Liv, is the timing of this announcement. You know, I can't help but wonder if the staff hadn't chosen to gone public with by, by sharing their unhappiness with us and sharing the numbers with with us, which did seem to suggest that the staff had taken all of the pain and the shareholders had still had the same profit, whether we would have seen this announcement to staff in the last few days, you know, do you think it actually was the fact that there was some publicity around it actually um, did make the organisation move a bit in, in finding this extra money? It would seem logical that that is the case. Uh, this story came out on the 11th of May and this announcement was made on the 17th, so just under a week later. Um, so that would seem logical and to be honest, it also makes sense that if there is publicity and, and industry chatter around that group, as particularly if you are trying to recruit to perhaps fill some of those vacancies left, then it makes sense to be proactive and to make those adjustments. So if anybody would like uh, Olivia to campaign on their behalf for a pay rise, just leak documents to olivia at mumbrella.com.au. Moving on to the Hayes research as well, the 9% of employers are awarding increases of 3% and above to start. Were we expecting anything different to that? We've heard about the struggles of last year, not least, uh, from Clementia Group, but others as well. On the flip side, though, we, we've heard a lot of uh, positivity in market to, so were those hay figures uh, surprising? Not particularly, although I think the small number of employers looking to give wage increases, given that last year we saw predominantly either cuts or stagnant wages, I think that's probably the more concerning thing, the fact that it is such a low number of employers who are looking to give a wage rise of 3% or more. Uh, compare it to the 48% of employees surveyed who are expecting a wage increase of three to six and that's where the rift really becomes um, apparent because if you're going to have staff who are there expecting a 3% or more pay increase, nearly half of all staff, and you've only got 9% of employers who are looking to do the same, that that's a misalignment. So there's going to be some issues to, to deal with and, and obviously employees and employers will need to meet somewhere in neutral territory in order to address that. Otherwise, we will see a lot of upheaval in terms of people moving. 
We're going to move on now. Olivia's got a full inbox to check, I imagine. But next up, Xander Wilson is going to chat with Vanguard CMO Louise Ayres about the investment company's first consumer-facing marketing campaign in Australia. The full Umbrella 360 reimagined agenda is ready with some new speakers recently added. This year's lineup not only welcomes leading industry executives from Australia, but also some of the biggest names in sports and entertainment. Just confirmed is Destination New South Wales CEO Steve Cox and Qantas CMO Joe Boundy, plus media and entertainment personality Ash London. With a wealth of challenging industry topics set to be tackled by the people who know them best, you can't afford to miss out on the return of Australia's leading media and marketing conference. Check out the full program now at mumbrella.com.au forward slash mumbrella360. So joining me this week on the Mumbrella cast is Louise Ayres, who's the Chief Marketing Officer at Vanguard. She's previously held a position at places like Sport Australia and ANZ. Louise, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Andrew. Great to be with you today. So... I'm really interested to know, what's it like leading the marketing function at an investment company, perhaps uh, in comparison to a more tangible customer or service-based business? Yes, well, it's been an um, interesting transition from government through to investment management, but actually there's probably more similarities than you would think differences in, in joining Vanguard compared to Sport Australia. And some of the elements that I see is that both of them I can really put myself in as the client. So at Sport Australia, it was very much around, you know, getting Australia moving, being a more active society, and, and I knew I needed to do that myself. And then at Vanguard, it's really starting to build out that direct relationship with all Australians about their investment and their financial future, and that's something that I could really put myself in as the target client as well. Yeah, definitely. And I guess Vanguard, you know, we haven't seen a lot of marketing collateral in the market. Um, That is something I'm going to touch on a little bit later. But um, how does it position itself compared to perhaps other investment companies? And and I guess, you know, what are you guys doing at the moment in terms of getting the Vanguard name out there? Yes, well, probably a key part is even the fact that I am the first CMO of Vanguard in Australia. So before I joined, and we can perhaps talk about it because I joined eight weeks before COVID hit. So my first year wasn't exactly the first year that I expected, but I am the first CMO for Vanguard in Australia. Previously, marketing was part of product or aligned with the product team and um, as a joint team. And it was really a B2B focus. So that's probably why you haven't seen a lot of Vanguard in the market. Um, The marketing team was really focused on our institutional and our financial advisor clients. And now we're making a global um, strategic um, change to really focus both on our advisor and B2B clients and tell our story direct to um, investors. Yeah, and just touching on that, you, you mentioned starting around COVID. I, I started towards the end of COVID in, in this job, and it's it's obviously a common theme um, across a lot of jobs at the moment. Um, what were you expecting coming into the role? And, and I guess, how did you have to shape and, and change your expectations um, when, you know, you had to spend quite a lot of time at home and being in such a senior role too? 
Yes, well, it really was around designing the marketing team. So coming in, the eight weeks was, now I see it as an immersion. Um, I didn't really know when we packed up our offices and I remember people saying we might not be back and it was like, surely that's, um, that's not going to happen. We'll, we'll be back next month and, and being in Melbourne. So what it really meant was that connection with my global colleagues. So being part of the global marketing team, having to do all of that virtual. Um, I also report into the global CMO. So I'm very thankful that I did get um, one trip in early February to meet the um, global CMO and my US counterparts. Um, and as I say, when I hopped on the plane coming back, I didn't think it would be probably two years until I see them again. Um, and really the main component has been how to design and structure the marketing function, um, as many people have done over COVID, and then how to recruit talent. So uh, the marketing team's doubled in size um, over the 12 months since I've joined. And, you know, a lot of that was bringing in talent through... Um, Zoom interviews and, you know, that added a, a really interesting dimension to how you build out teams, how you build out culture um, and doing it all while we're sitting in our, um, in our home offices. Yeah, and the, the marketing campaign I, I mentioned recently, it was interesting before this chat we've had, I was actually just sitting at home on, on Sunday and I saw the, um, the TV commercial come on and I went, oh, that's helpful for my interview next week. Um, tell us a bit about that collateral. Uh, we haven't seen a lot of, um, I guess, press go out with it. Is that part of the strategy? Is it sort of like a slow rollout, try to hit those touch points per first? And, and is it just the, the TVC that's out at the moment as well? Yeah, so it's probably the vanguard way of doing things that we let the work prove itself and, and let our product and, and not create a lot of noise because it's really the focus on our clients. But no, it's, it's a fully integrated campaign to really share our story with more Australians and build the brand awareness in that direct-to-investor um, direct to investor strategy so you know it's a fully integrated campaign um, developed by TBWA um, UM have done the media planning and strategy for us and we'll be in market for many weeks to to come so we want this to be start the start of a long-term um, connection and and campaign um, into the Australian market to get more Australians investing and the investing in us theme um, is really also talks to our US ethos. So in the US, Vanguard is owned by our clients. Um, they are our owners. And so investing in us is really about that mindset and that philosophy that everything Vanguard does is with our investor and our clients front and centre. And the ad itself um it uses sort of situations. There's a there's someone accessing their phone in a taxi uh, on a laptop in a park. Was that about showing the accessibility of it? Is is some of the targeting really for maybe people who might want to be investors but but aren't yet? Is is it sort of trying to tap into that untapped market perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. And this is an example where I can definitely put myself um, front and center. I've been in financial 
services for over 14 years, as you say, um, working at ANZ. ANZ had a close relationship with, with Vanguard, but I hadn't heard of ETFs, so exchange traded funds. I hadn't invested directly into mutual funds myself. And then through this knowledge and, and what we're sharing through the ad is about accessibility. And I think a lot of Australians think you need thousands of dollars to start investing, but actually for $500, you can invest in our um, personal investor platform. And actually you can just put a little bit in every pay until you get to those um, amounts. So it is about making it accessible, making it simple and easy that you can every pay just put a little bit back in and and it really talks also to the vanguard philosophy which is around stay the course so we're all about take a long-term view um, whether that's with our partners um, our internal philosophy and also then our investment philosophy is if you put a little bit away and you stay the course you will end up in a very strong position yeah, and also on the ad itself, um, you know, you mentioned that investing in us means investing in you, that that brand platform. There isn't, like, you know, it's not an informational ad about how to use the platform. It sort of seems more to me to be building out that that brand equity, I guess. Um, it, will we will we see more sort of in depth stuff coming once it's once Vanguard's established and this campaign has run its course? Yeah, ab absolutely. You're 100% right. So we recognise that because we haven't been present in that direct to investor market, really spending a few weeks of the campaign introducing ourselves, um, saying, you know, this is Vanguard. I'm talking about the Vanguard effect. And the Vanguard effect um, is a phenomenon that others talk about, that when Vanguard comes into a market, it lowers the cost of investing and it makes an impact for all investors. So really the first few weeks of the campaign is really in that awareness, introducing ourselves to the Australian market. And then we will move in to more consideration and conversion. So you will see in the weeks ahead, um, far more specific and tangible um, reasons to choose particularly around our personal investor platform, also our advisors. So our, our business in Australia has been built on our advisors and for many people it is actually go and talk to your financial advisor about Vanguard um, and see if it's right for you. And you may also have heard that we're building out a superannuation offer and um, looking to launch um, into the superannuation market um, in the coming months. So that's something you will see um, coming through as the, um, as the year progresses. Yeah. And in your role as well, um, obviously you've probably got quite a bit to do with how these campaigns are rolling out. Um, I'm interested to know with Vanguard, I guess, positioning itself as, you know, I guess maybe a disruptor, um, whether you'd say that yourself, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but um, what's your what's your view, I guess, on, um, you mentioned it's rolling out integrated, what channels does that include? Um, you know, will you be sort of looking to be, you know, ahead of the curve and looking to get into places like connected TV, programmatic advertising, all that sort of thing? Um, or, or will there be, I guess, with the awareness stages, more looking at the, the linear channels, you know, TV, radio and that sort of thing? 
we're looking at a combination as and as you're right coming in you we don't have legacy either legacy thinking in how we need to be in market and working with our partners even looking at our, our social channels and bringing that through into um our, our websites and digital conversions. So we're looking at really, um, we joke that we talk about the funnel way too often um, across our marketing teams, but actually looking at how do we work through the funnel, um, bringing different media in at different stages and recognizing that as an enterprise marketing team and a whole of business, there are different strategies we need to engage Australians around starting investing versus conversion at a superannuation or in the B2B context. So that's where we're working heavily with our partners to identify which channels are appropriate and compelling um, for each um, message, each audience and, and the stage that we're trying to build out um, on this journey as well. Definitely. And you mentioned there that the creative was done with TBWA. Um, how was it working with them? Did they sort of get the whole Vanguard thing straight away? Um, yeah, what, what was it like working with an agency like that? Yes, and that was part of the, the digital experience um, in setting up the marketing function was also who are our partners and bringing in one of the right partners that we need um, to deliver against the strategy. So the pitch process, um, I think for many in 2020, it was how do you do pitches um, via Zoom and, and via Teams um, and really get that partnership coming through. But the TBWA team have been, um, you know, great partners um, led by one of their team who is a, um, a US citizen and he knew Vanguard and we always joke that they planted him um, in the team just to get the business. Um, but he knew Vanguard from the US lens which really helped um, in our understanding because the business is such a large business, you know, $9 trillion managed for 30 million investors across the globe. Um, and so having that US perspective of our heritage, but then being able to apply it in an Australian context um, made that partnership um, incredibly strong. Yeah, and what can you tell us about um, the evolution of, of Vanguard's customer, customer experience platform and I guess how that's changed and, and what you're looking to do with it? Is it looking to become simpler? Is it looking to add features? Yeah, so we launched, it's actually a one week, um, no, one year um, this week that we launched our personal investor platform and that is our means that all Australians can come into a very simple digital experience and actually start to invest in, in funds, in ETFs, um, buy shares through the platform. And that simplicity of the digital experience is absolutely front and centre and bringing in talent around customer experience, um, our lead user experience designers, UI, were all capabilities that we've brought into the marketing team. And to really build out that digital experience, you know, superannuation will be um, a digital experience direct to um, to Australians as well. So it has been absolutely front and centre and then looking at how we evolve. So how do we bring out um, new app features, um, new means of um, investing on a regular basis, new types of investing. So it's almost the case that you, 
that every time you launch in a digital context, it's a MMP or an MVP, and then you spend the foreseeable future continuing to um, to iterate and bring out new features into market. And we've also done that on the B2B side. Um, even in the last couple of months, we've launched a new retirement income builder tool. That's a digital tool to help advisors engage with their clients and really build out um, retirement solutions that are bespoke um, for each client. So that digital um, platform-based customer experience is not just what we're creating for the direct investor, but also um, through our advisor clients as well. Yeah. And just before we wrap up, have you got any predictions you can give me for the rest of the year, whether it be um, stuff in the pipeline for Vanguard, the financial industry, maybe the marketing industry? Well, I think I'd, I'll probably play back um, our founder, John Bogle, in that sense of stay the course. And I think we have a... Um, a world-renowned chart that's called our index chart and it shows over the long term rather than reacting to um, the GFC, the pandemic, if you actually stay the course, the trajectory will always take you higher. So I think whether it's for the markets, um, whether it's for a marketing team that's only a year old, um, I think if we stay the course, um, know where we want to head, um, we'll certainly be in a stronger place. Sounds like sound advice for anyone except people investing in Bitcoin. Exactly. Okay, thank you so much, Louise, for joining me on the Mumbrella Cast today. Thanks, Xander. Great to have been here. Thank you. That's it for this week, though. Xander, Tim, Liv, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Damien. Thank you. Damien.